and welcome back to another episode of Real Talk. I am your host, Officer Antoine Thomas. Listen, I would like to take this time to thank everyone who has really been listening, giving me great feedback on this podcast show. I'm excited to bring this to you. And to all my listeners, thank you. Continue, please, whatever you do, continue to like, share, and I even said love. Love it. And listen to the latest episodes if you have not done so already. It is going to be great. I challenge each of you who have not had the opportunity to listen to the last episode of what we have a new series entitled Blue Chats with Current and Former Law Enforcement Officers. You heard from the great Sheriff Dunning Harrison of Wake County, my former sheriff, my former boss. You do not want to miss what he had to say. We talked about uh, his career, his fi- over 50 years of law enforcement. We talked about his Highway Patrol days, his sheriff's days. We even dug deep into the 2020 BLM riots that was sparked by the obviously controversial uh, things that took place during the Derek Chauvin and George Floyd incident. And you really want to hear from him. I don't know any other person at this point I could have brought on to shed light on the things that happened within Wake County. Remember, a 16-year veteran sheriff who knows that county, and uh, he gave us great insight on what he would have done if he was still the sheriff. So I have enjoyed doing that. But I have another special guest on with me today. He's by telephone, and we have been wanting to do this for a while. We've been excited. He is a, a personal friend of mine. He is my former uh, supervisor as well. He was my training officer. He was all that. He's still to this day a brother, uh, and I love him, and he's just a great man. And he happens to be a veteran who served honorably in the United States Marine Corps. And so I'm happy to have him on today. Again, this is Real Talk, and I am your host, Officer Antoine Thomas. My special guest today is a man who is – worth mentioning that he has a lot of knowledge to share and i want the real talk family to give a special and a warm welcome to my friend and brother mike marsh mike how are you doing on this beautiful day i'm good thank you antoine for having me nice to talk to you it's a pleasure to all the listeners out there believe it or not uh mike and i we haven't spoken by phone in a while but we text quite often when we have the opportunity and when our names pop in each other heads and of course we follow each other on facebook i have seen his sons grow up to be young men and i know they're going to be doing great things maybe one may follow in his footsteps or even go higher but i'm excited mike to have you on with me mike if you would not mind please Tell all the listeners about your law enforcement career. And I want you to start from the beginning, from the day that you uh, left the Marines and joined the um, police force. Okay. Um, I would say it started back when I was in the Marines, actually. Um, I was an infantryman. And at the end of my four years, I was sick of traveling overseas all the time. And I wanted to re-enlist, but I wanted to re-enlist as uh, military police. And they told me they didn't have any openings. And so 
I decided to, you know, go ahead and get out and become a civilian. So that's what I did. And then, uh, I was working for the town of Cary, um, there in North Carolina. And then eventually I was thinking to myself, if I'm going to do this, I need to get it over with (laughs) before I get too (laughs) old. So kind of went ahead and, uh, my father-in-law, he was the chief deputy for Sampson County, John Connerly. And you had mentioned Donnie Harrison. I know they were fond of each other. So my father-in-law, he passed away recently, but over in the last few years. And, uh, he was always a mentor to me. And so I wanted to go ahead and let's get it going and become a police officer. You know, I forgot that, uh, we haven't again spoken in so long. I remember that when you, when you worked for care, you worked for the public utilities department, right? Is that what you did? If I'm not That's mistaken. right. See, yep. see how good my memory is. And then that's, good. that's right. And I have forgotten that your father-in-law was the sheriff uh, for many years in Sampson County. Wow. That brings back memories. And so up until the point of now, you uh, have enjoyed, I know the police force, and we're going to talk about um, your experiences. And of course, I know that you uh, took an early retirement and I know it was the best because I was around when you were thinking about doing that. And, you uh, took some time, and of course, you have a wonderful wife who supports you, and she was all on board. And, and as a matter of fact, y'all left the state of North Carolina because your wife took another job. And of course, it was uh, a little—I wouldn't say disappointing, but it was a sad moment. Um, and, and and you moved back uh, to your state, I believe, or you went to a different state. I forgot where are you located again now. We're in Ohio. That's right. But he, Mike's originally from Michigan. See, I remember all those That's details. Right. And so that's right. He's in Ohio. So I plan to get up there and see my family at some point. So that's awesome. We're going to be, again, diving a little bit more into um, Brother Mike's career. But I, I know that he served uh, many years uh, for the town of Fuquay Marina Police Department, which is where we, uh, he and I met. And again, he was my training officer. I had some rough times with the great <laughs> with the great Mike Marsh. I wish I had Mike, we need a couple hours just to talk about how that training went. But I'll tell you what, I'm gonna be honest. If you've never been trained by a Marine, you need some time to experience that. But I can tell you what, Mike, to this day, um I still can remember the training you gave me and not let alone uh investigating motor vehicle crashes. Uh, I tell you what, but you were inspirational into, uh, as we say, instrumental, I should say, in, in my career. And I have been able to apply what you gave me and build on it. So I'm excited. But look, I don't want to spend time reminiscing. We can do that later. However, we want to dive right into uh, this very important conversation, Blue Chats, with former Lieutenant Mike Marsh. And so we are ready to dive into it. Just keep in mind, as I always say, audience, this show is centered around police. It is built around police, and we talk about police matters, and we interject it, and we uh, actually inject politics, of course. And we're going to talk about what's going on later in the show uh, in our country as it pertains to Afghanistan. But, Mike, I'm ready. My first question to you. Oh, man, we're excited. I'm just, you don't even know how excited I am. Mike, what inspired you to become a police officer? Um, I would say... um... Me, 
mainly it was, I always wanted to, you, you probably hear this on interview boards and stuff, but I always wanted to help people. It wasn't always about, you know, the chasing and the, the fighting and the unknown, even though that was all exciting. At first it was about, I, I enjoyed helping people. Well, you definitely made an impact doing that. That's for sure. And you kind of answered that question earlier. In the second question, uh, sort of you answered it, but want our listeners to always uh, be engaged and remember. At what age did you join the police force? Uh, I was 24 when I uh, graduated the academy. 24. So you, as they would say, you were uh, – Full of piss and vinegar. You had just left the Marines sharp. You know, you were in shape. You were uh, just still squared away guy, but you were definitely squared away in that mindset that you had just left the armed forces. So do you find, and I know this is not even the question that we uh, discussed, but did you find it was an easy transition moving over from the military over to civilian work as a police officer? Well, the, you know, I had been out, Let's see, I got out in uh, December 31st of 1999 uh, out of the Marines. So then, let's see, so that was for four years. Uh, no, I'm sorry, for two years, I was working with the town of Cary in between. And so then when I went to the to BLET, um, you know, I became the class president for our group. And that was just kind of, you know, kind of a natural thing going from the military to basically a paramilitary uh, setting. So, um, you know, that, it was easy for me, except for the, you know, the academic part of it was all new, you know, learning state law and such. But Absolutely. Yes, that was a, the only really big transition. And for the listeners out there, we, we, we always use it. I've said it before in a couple of shows. Uh, basic law enforcement training is um, exactly what Mike said, uh, BLET or BLET. Not, it's not a bacon, lettuce, and, and tomato sandwich so in case people are thinking they're going to get yeah. hungry. That is the basic law enforcement training. And so we you, we always just use a uh, synonym, I guess you want to call it, and we call it BLET or BLET. So that is what uh, Mike is referring to, and um, that is where we have to go to start our law enforcement career. So great. Mike, I appreciate that one. When you first became a police officer, was it exactly what you had imagined it to be, what you had seen on TV? I know you were a fan of cops, so you've seen all that high-speed chase and running on foot. Did you, when you got into it, did you realize uh, it's not the same as Hollywood predicts it to be? <laughs> yeah, I mean, my first <laughs> day uh, working actually was the day I graduated BLET. They, uh, Wow. They, they were able to get me hired with the town. Um, so I had, I actually, uh, when I gave my speech as the class president, um, was already in uniform, you quit, you know, wearing a police uniform and had to finish there, you know, the day finish, you know, the graduation ceremony and all and went home. And I had to change into regular clothes. Like, I just changed into gym clothes, went to the police department. They had to spray me oh, yeah. with 
uh, you know, pepper spray. They did that in the parking lot. So it's late afternoon. And uh, once I manned up enough to uh, <laughs> gather myself, I jumped in the patrol car, soaking wet from the hose, you know, spraying, trying to get it off. Went home, took a shower, got my uniform back on, and went and worked from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. So, you know, it was pretty exciting that first night. Wow. I never knew that. You you don't find that much, audience. He was sworn in, and he started working the same day. And another thing I didn't know, you never shared with me, Mike, that you were the class president. Guys, we're talking to a former class president right here. I didn't even know that. <laughs> <laughs> the class uh, president himself, Mike Marsh. Yeah, well, we had a lot of uh... – we had a big mixture of different people in this class, so uh, it all worked out. Wow. There's no need to even talk about your first day on the job. You just answered it. And that is, my friends, a first day on the job. And if you've never been pepper, pepper sprayed, I don't recommend it, okay? But if you ever find yourself on the losing end of a cop's pepper spray, I suggest let them know that I told you you need to run. That stuff is powerful. And it for, is. It is, right? And and I know you've probably used it multiple and numerous of times in your career, your uh, law enforcement career. And let me tell you what, that would kind of what we call really be a sucky day. You was pepper sprayed, had to get out of your eyes. And, of course, if again, if you've never been pepper sprayed, it usually reignites itself at some point. So, Mike – being a Marine, or maybe we should say because he's a Marine, he can take that, right? The average person couldn't take being pepper sprayed and having <laughs> to work at the same time. That is what we call moto. Yeah, I just wanted to get back to work. You know, I wanted that first night. Well, so, Well, you really showed them that you wanted the job, trust me. I don't know if that was a, a test uh, to see if you really were going to make it, and trust me, you made it. So I commend you on that. Well, we're having fun, but let's move on to this one. What was your specialty in the profession of law enforcement? What did you? What was your niche? What did you enjoy doing the most? Oh, uh, I would say, you know, I did a lot. You know, I'm, I was a street, you know, just assigned to a zone, and then at first, and then. Uh, I went and did school resource officer for a little bit because that school resource officer got moved out of there at the high school. Um, I think I even did some traffic for a little bit, but then uh, I got into the police explorers, you know, training those young kids. And, and then I was the Lieutenant over the field training. And that, I think field training was probably, what I enjoyed doing the most. Um, it was a lot of work and it was frustrating at times, but I would say that's probably what I was the best at. I would say you were the best at many things, but field training for sure. You're also the, you didn't know this, but you were also at the best of making your field training, uh, your trainees miss dinner too. At least when I was training with you, it was many nights I didn't get a chance to enjoy dinner because I was uh, trying to learn the laws of the land and let me tell you what when I got home I ate a quite a bit I remember <laughs> yeah, that's surprising actually as much <laughs> as I like to eat but. 
many of mornings we should have been at Bojangles. We were at the PD working on reports. Well, Mike, we're having a blast. We are back. Look, when did you realize that the law enforcement profession was changing as it pertains to the scrutiny? This is a loaded question, by the way. Mistrust, the mistrust, excuse me, and the disrespect that was brought on by people on the left. When did you see it change? Uh, it is kind of a tough one, but, you know, I think the one thing I remember uh, that was completely out of the norm for my thinking was when those police officers, I think in in Boston, maybe arrested that Harvard professor. Right. I remember that. And yeah. And, you know, as a, you know, as a police officer, you, you listen to the whole reasoning behind it and you see why. Well, then the president at the time came out and said that the police acted stupidly. And mm -hmm. I remember that being like, mm -hmm shocking to me personally because uh i think it mainly because i've never heard a president actually talk about a maybe you know a local government and so you know so bluntly and then to have the what do you call it a beer summit or something and uh beer and a burger forward it just seemed like it was okay to talk bad about the police, not just on TV, but even out in the streets. Wow. So so you're saying, if I hear you correctly, and I remember I can go back to years ago when this happened. We had these conversations. Obviously, I wasn't as um, heavy into politics as I am now, but I remember we spoke briefly about it, that doctor who, uh, I think how the story went, Lieutenant, it was, Guess the neighbor saw him breaking into his own house. That rang a bell, and somehow the police showed up. Come to find out, he lived there. And you are one hundred percent right. Barack Obama said that uh, the police were acting stupidly, stupidly, which really he meant that they were stupid and they didn't know what they were doing. And you're right. He invited him to the White House lawn. They had the best gourmet cheeseburger that anybody could ever eat, and I would imagine. That burger was juicy, uh, Mike Marsh. I, I bet it just had juice dripping. You know, it would have been cool to eat a burger at the White House and sit there with the president and call cops stupid. And Hopefully he took home a souvenir, maybe like a White House uh, logo sealed napkin or something that said that he <laughs> spent yeah. time with the yeah, president. I mean, that was, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that was a one-sided conversation for that police officer. but I am um, sure of it. I am yeah. sure of it. And you're right. I, I feel this, you know, I had forgot about that in that aspect, but that was the, of course, as many other uh, scenarios and reasons, but that was in our, in, in my opinion as well, the onset on, and the unbecoming of how uh, the government was perceiving the police. And when you're um, head of state, head of the country, um, boils down to the president when he makes a comment like that and pretty much opens the door for anyone to uh, make negative comments that basically the president can say it. Nobody's exempt from saying it. And you're right. I agree with that. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, that was, uh, it was an eye opener, you know, not just for me, you know, my father-in-law was shocked by it. He'd been in it for, you know, since 
74 or something like that, law enforcement. So I would say it was around that time. And still today, I think people still blame uh, that president for a lot of the hatred between police and the communities. Absolutely. I would definitely say that he brought some of that on, encouraged it. We're going to call it like it is. See, like you already know, Mike, on this show, Real Talk, we speak the truth and we have to put the blame where the blame has to be. Now, I will say this. As citizens, uh, if we can offer you some law enforcement quick advice, get to know your neighbors, okay? Before you get the police involved, make sure that that neighbor doesn't live there. And at the end of the day, if the neighbor decides to break in his own home, so be it. Do it. But we can solve some of our issues by just knowing who your neighbors are. I can tell you in my neighborhood, and I know you do, Mike, I know who the neighbors are, who belongs there, people that are out of character who don't belong. Uh, I still stay within my means and make sure, because they could be visiting. But you want to be careful with that stuff. But you're right. I digress. I'm sorry. I had to say that. You know. What are your thoughts on the events that took place last year as it pertains to Derek Chauvin? And George Floyd, the, the the martyr that they called him, the the great man who who did no wrong, George Floyd, and the BLM riots and the U.S. Capitol riots. It is up to you if you want to comment on any of those topics. I'll let you pick three. Uh, I, I'll I'll comment uh, just briefly on the George Floyd thing because you know. As a police officer, like I just gave an example of uh, defending the police when it came to uh, the president calling them stupid. In this situation, you know, and you know, because I, you know, how I train people, I, it was, it was the dumbest thing I had ever seen for this cop to just sit on the back of his neck or however he was sitting on him with his knee on him. And in no way, shape, or form can anyone defend that. Um, but is that why he died alone? Uh, I don't. I doubt it. But it just looked terrible. It looked terrible, and um, it was disappointing to see that. But I just don't understand how they can, you know, put murder charges on. Because I think every day I woke up, uh, got dressed in uniform, went out. What What would happen if? We did. We made a mistake, and someone died because of that mistake. That doesn't mean it was murder. And, and to me, that just blew me away. But um, I th- it could have been avoided. I think it could have been. If with proper uh, training, I think he probably would. And, and any of those guys wouldn't have been in that situation. That's good stuff. And I always say on the show, Mike. You probably heard me say it before. I don't know any including yourself, even though you're not still in it, but any white officer who goes to work or even before they head to work, they say to themselves the night before, I can't wait to get in that patrol car because I want to kill me a black person today. No, 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 let me say it like this. I'm going to kill me a nigger today. I don't know any white police officer that has ever said it. Now, some may say you would never hear them say it. I know their heart in that aspect. Now, will we all have something that come against us that we're not prepared for? And you hit on the nail, Mike. You said uh, back then we 
have all been in situations and, and the whole goal is where will, you know, somebody die at the hands of, of us by accident. Are we supposed to be charged for murder? Um, and, and the answer is no, you're right. If we're not doing that thing maliciously, like, like, like he stated about Derek and you're right. He was on that neck a, a long period of time, but at the end of the day, I think um, we will see, this is just my opinion in the next five years or even may take longer or shorter his case will be appealed and overturned because you look at this, I believe in my heart, the reason why he was really charged with the charges they gave him because they understood that if they did not uh, bring down an indictment that had been, of course, the guilty verdict, that city had never seen a riot. They were going to see it that night, and they were prepared to do oh, it. Oh, of course. Right? Of course. That's not fair at all. It's not fair at all. It's not fair at all, but that's... And of course, that'll be denied. But that—that that clearly is the case for a murder charge. Absolutely. And when that you know, day, and you, like you were saying, you know, people, officers go to work saying they're going to go do some stuff like that. It's just not true. I mean, it—it it just isn't true. I mean, like you said, if it is true, and and people want to say it's because you don't hear people say that, well. Those people are probably probably need to be committed anyways, and are probably not coming to work. Exactly, because you know it hadn't changed. The first thing we have in our mind when we get to work, if we work in the morning shift, is what are we having for breakfast? And if you're coming in for dinner, <laughs> if you're coming in for dinner, you want to know the from the brothers and sisters what are we having for dinner? But at the end of the day, there ain't no cop, black, white, green. That is coming to work because who wants to be under this type of scrutiny? So I'm with you. Thank you for that knowledge there. I, I totally agree. And to the listeners, I hope that you uh, understand where we're coming from there. But we want to move on. What made you decide to get out of law enforcement, Mike? What was that deciding factor? Oh, that's uh, personal reasons, you know. I had just, uh, night shift was terrible. I had gotten to the point where I didn't want to, you know, working, rotating days and nights was not fun. Uh, and you know that. I do. And, you know, they didn't want to switch to permanent shifts. Um, the officers had that were coming in uh, towards the end there were different. Um, the policies were different, you know, with change and, uh, you know, my wife had that opportunity for a promotion and I jumped on it and she was, uh, supportive of that. You know, it was sad, but at the same time, um, for me with the three young kids and, you know, rotating shifts, it was kind of a good it was a good day when I left there. I did, you know, and I feel like I I did my best when I was there, and I think they know that. Um, we had a good chief at the time, and, you know, he tried to get me to stay, but it was nothing he had done. So I just made that decision. Well, you left your mark on, the, on, on that department, and there's things that they will ever be grateful for. I know I am. And for those who don't know you, and I'm sure 
we're going to have some family listening into the show because they want to hear from their great uh, beloved family member. But Mike is a huge family guy, and his sons are involved in sports, heavily in baseball. And being in that, because uh, I recall some days, you know, you would find time to go to games, and, and, and that's what it's all about. You, you were not only giving that community, community policing, but you were taking the time out to still be with your with your sons and that and that meant a lot and so i know that was a deciding factor but i can tell you uh i am blessed at this point to have a permanent shift and like mike said those rotating shifts 12 hour shifts are uh it takes a toll on your body but i'm fortunate at this point i'm happy about it almost 12 years in the business i've never had a permanent day shift and i enjoy it i'm home at the regular time that a, a person should be and i'm i enjoy it so Definitely understand personal reasons and things have have changed. And yes, we have a different breed of uh, police officers coming in. Of course, the millennials are taking over and their mindset is totally different. And so all that built up to say, Mike said, look, I had enough. And there were good and bad uh, reasons why he left. And uh, I'm just glad to know he's doing great. This is blue chats and I'm enjoying it. Do you miss being a cop, Mike? Really? I just want you to be honest. I know you do miss it, but I know sometimes you're sitting there on the couch, you know, probably have your hands, you know, kind of like symboled out like a gun. You're probably doing a little air, <laughs> little air gun, you know, making sounds. What are you doing with your time these days? You miss it. Um, you know, I don't think I, I, uh, ever really missed it after I got out. I, you know, um, I felt I was at peace with my decision. So, you know, I came came up here and, you know, like you had mentioned, you know, community policing and such, there were times, plenty of times we'd get off at 7 a.m. And I'd on the weekend, I'd have, you know, I coached. So I'd have a baseball game to coach at 9. So at 8.30, kids start showing up. I would just stay at, sometimes in uniform. And coach a baseball game, and then get back in the car and go home and try to go to sleep. Or the kids get off the bus. Sometimes those were tough, and uh, I think I just enjoyed the nine to five when I hung it up. And so now I haven't really missed it too much. I, you know, when I see a police officer, I always try to thank them and. I look out for them when they got somebody pulled over or whatever. I still make sure they're all right, but don't know that I could do anything anymore. <laughs> well, let me tell you, if any cop in your area ever needs help, you can't physically see Mike, but he is a stout of a man, tall guy, uh, muscled guy, and I would hate to be on the receiving end of the help from Mike from the police officer. Of course, I'd rather be the police officer getting the help from Mike, but I know you would uh, stop your car with, with a uh, drop of a dime to assist the cop. If, if no, oh, yeah. I know you would do it. Uh, you said something that was very profound. You talked about hopefully going home and getting that sleep, uh, and you want to see your, your boys get off the school bus and all. With that schedule, for anyone who is looking to go in this, into this profession, I know I spoke about it on the first episode, becoming a – Police officers are calling, but I talked about, you know, chatting with your family, friends, and making sure 
this the job that you want to go into. But Mike said something that was profound, and he talked about the uh, wearing down of it. And and there is a lot that goes into it, not only psychologically, mentally, but physically. It will take a wear on your body. So keep that in mind for the women and men who uh, want to see themselves in this profession. Mike, I'm enjoying it, like I said before. Where do you see the law enforcement profession in the next 10 years? Oh, well, I hope. Uh, I don't know. That's a tough question because it could go either direction right now. I don't know um, if they'll ever have, you know, the support of. Well, let, let me say this. I don't know if they'll ever not be scared or second guess themselves as much as they probably do right now. Law enforcement. I cannot imagine when I was doing it and when I first started having to be in today's law enforcement. It's, I don't even know how you guys feel about it, but I know that when I see some of these people, there are some of these officers being charged with stuff and man, that's a tough decision. You guys have to make really fast and I know how fast and the, the people that are making these decisions on, you know, your future have no idea on how fast these reactions have to be made. So it's, I I don't know. I hope that it doesn't get worse. If it has to stay the same, I'd say that's bad enough. But if it, I just hope it doesn't get worse for you guys. Agreed. And of course your thoughts and opinions are hypothetical, but I I know from, your experience you would have some knowledge and no we can't predict what the future holds uh right now it doesn't look too too good doesn't look too good uh however people like myself and people like you who are out of it but still have a um a voice we are fighting back and many other people that i know we're trying to fight back and take i call it taking back our profession because if we don't do it we are going to be in a spot that we've never wanted to be in before. And everyone knows real talk. We say here, we would never defund the police. And that's what they're trying to do. And we saw recently that uh, I was very surprised. I was actually reading something just this last Friday, past Friday. And Cory Booker himself said, anyone who could even imagine defund the police, he said something to the fact that that is the most, stupidest thing ever and i was surprised to hear that come from him and of course his colleagues and all his leftist friends and people that support him were pissed off but you know at some point you just got to say okay look this is enough i mean this it sounds great to fund the police you know but you can never do that we were no and that's a that's a terrible you know i i actually have have heard some of the arguments you know of the some departments that have like military vehicles and this and that, but uh, maybe some of that is excessive in some um, local governments. But, you know, when you, when it comes to a situation where you would need that stuff, you don't want to have, you don't want to not have it. And, you know, the people that want to defund the police, let them uh, experience one of these serious calls and they'll wish they had those paramilitary vehicles. 
you know, man, that, that just ties it right in. At the end of the day, I'd rather, and every citizen out here who feels the way Mike just talked about, you don't, and, the, and of course, the president himself, that guy, Joe Biden even said, what in the world is a uh, police department doing with uh, military-grade vehicles? Well, do you want civilians to have it? Or, oh, I'll take it home. Do you want the Afghans to have it? Oh, I'm sorry. We've already done that. Or yeah. do you want the police to have it? And at the end of the day, if it ever boiled down to that we needed it, guess what? It's in the hands of the police department. They can gladly and uh, easily hand it over. So I beg to differ when people say that. You'd rather for the police to have it than some crazy... Yeah, movie. I mean, I mean, if it was, you know, a department like the size of where you're working and had a, you know, a 12-man SWAT vehicle, then, you know, to me that would be a waste of funds. And you agree, I'm sure, but um, most of these places that have that stuff need it. And so... I don't know. It's crazy times. Very crazy times. And and people are just wanting something to say. You know that. Well, Mike, we have wrapped up the first segment of Blue Chats with current and former law enforcement officers. And I want to move into what is most relevant now, and that is the Afghan war with your experience. And so we're going to go for a short break very quickly in a moment and Mike we're going to dive right into the expertise that you bring along from serving in the United States Marines and being in my opinion an expert to tap into this uh, what is going on in Afghanistan so listeners just in case you forgot this is real talk just in case you forgot and I am your host Antoine Thomas, and I do have on the line with me, Mike Marsh. So if you're driving in your car, like I always say, make sure you're seatbelted in, you're focused on the road. I know you're having so much fun listening to us chat, but focus on the road. I hate for you, I hate for you to damage your vehicle. And if you're home on the couch, wrapped in your blankets, don't fall asleep yet. We have more where this is coming from. Look, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with you in just a short minute. This is Real Talk. Welcome back. Welcome back. Hope you're able to grab a drink, some popcorn, whatever you like, or whatever you enjoy snacking on while listening to real talk okay we're back now i told you we're going to dive into those heavy military questions and i have again my good brother here with me mike marsh who is a former marine and i want to get his expertise and his insight mike what are your thoughts on this afghan controversy uh well, it's hard to, you know, I know how easy it is for everyone to bash uh, and blame, I guess I should say, Donald Trump for every decision he made. It was always, if you notice, it's always him that made the decisions that they could blame on, but put the blame on. But now, um, you know, he's, 
Mr. Biden's not making all the decisions according to, you know, there's a large group of people making these decisions, so you can't put it on him. Well, I disagree because um, being that he is the president of the United States, he can make or break every decision that a group brings to him or, you know, if you know what I'm saying, he can do what he wants. And and I feel this is on him. And this is embarrassing. And not only is it embarrassing, it's it's uh it's just sad. It's sad to see uh our military personnel, you know, getting killed over there right now over this, the way it was handled. You know, I think I watched a video today of the Taliban trying to fly a black hawk and you know it's just sad you know and i can't imagine what the families of of veterans who were killed over the last you know two decades or whatever how they feel about you know it almost feels like i know they have to feel like this was all for nothing and um and i've heard people say you know this was a useless war you know, meaningless war we should have never even got into. But I think, I don't, you know, that bothers me when I hear that because we went to Afghanistan because of what they did to us on 9-11. You know, a lot of people, um, they think that we went there, you know, what, what do you, I've heard the oil excuses and, and, you know, George Bush and this and that. But we went there because of 9-11. And, Obama, uh, Obama, I'm sorry, Osama bin Laden, and we found him and took care of him. So, I mean, I wouldn't say it's all for nothing, but it's definitely sad to end the way we did. And I think it is just unacceptable that we have left Americans there and are going to leave Americans there. And all of these uh military equipment and weapons and it's it's really it's disgusting it is disgusting agreed now i know you wasn't in the air force but are those apache helicopters are they are they easy to fly i mean can anyone just get in and take off i mean or did no, we train I, these I'm, people? I'm surely not and i would love for them to be able to get it up in the air right now to be honest with you because they probably wouldn't get it down the way they're supposed to, but <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, you, people can figure out anything, you know, Taliban's got, got money and, and they can pay people. Heck there's Americans that would go over there and show them how to use it for the right price. I'm sure. I agree with that. It should have all been taken, destroyed, something should have never been left this is unbelievable now typically i know outside of you i spoke to some other soldiers uh not not this go around but it's been years and i remember i remember them saying and my aunt my mom's youngest sister is a retired um army vet so always talk to her too but at the end of the day isn't it kind of, uh, well, I guess it is possible, but don't they normally leave some of the equipment behind when we leave these countries anyways? Not as much as they did, but we normally leave a few items, right, usually? 
Not guns. Yeah, I mean, but I, I've never heard of, of it not being destroyed. I mean, I guess if it's something that, you know, oh. if we're talking about, you know, uh, I don't know, if we're talking about food containers or tents or, so, you know, stuff like that, but, or maybe just transportation vehicles, man hauling vehicles, something like that. But, I mean, when we're leaving, you know, helicopters, I've, I've heard jets, plenty of ammunition and such. I've, I've seen and heard of this stuff being destroyed before we leave it, not just walk away from it. But I'm sure there's people out there that can come up with something, but it's, it definitely is not normal. And that makes more sense to destroy. That's almost like as I talk to you, it's almost like they, the, the government designed it for the Taliban to get their hands on this stuff and ultimately use it against us. I mean, because who would, as you stated in the right mind, um, leave perfect equipment to the uh, demise or the hands of our enemy? That just doesn't make any sense. And 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 on the same note, leave Americans the same way. Leave Americans, which is right on task for the next question that I have. And you already went right into it, and I love it. But the audience needs to hear this. From your military experience, is it even possible? Is it even possible that the government will be able to rescue and get all of the stranded, and we call them stranded. I know I watched the uh, horrible press secretary, Jen Psaki, the other day tried to scorn uh, Peter Ducey for saying the word stranded. And at the end of the day, he's real. He he said the exact and the perfect word. They're stranded. Yeah, Over I mean, over. you say, is it possible? Uh, by this deadline? No. Is it possible? Clearly, you know, our military could do anything like that, especially go in and get certain people. Uh, but you know, I see it's got to be impossible for for them to get to, for the Americans that are there to get to the airport when, from everything I've read, they, the Taliban has checkpoints around the city. So they're not going to let people through. They're not going to, they're just not going to. And that means where do they go? And how do we get to them? And it doesn't sound like we're going to get to them. And that's a shame. It's it's terrible. It is a disaster. Not only that, the stranded Americans, but how about getting getting all of the soldiers out of Afghanistan before that 31st deadline? How are we able to do that successfully without a gun battle? Yeah, I, it's not possible. That part is not possible. And, uh, Clearly, they, I feel like he's made the decision that we're not going to do it. And that's sad for all those people that are going to be left there. Watching from the media and some of the interviews that you probably caught with the generals and all, are you impressed with the Biden administration military generals that we have that are leading this charge? Well... You know, that goes back to what I was rambling about a few minutes ago about, <laughs> you know, he's not making all the decisions. I mean, clearly there's people giving him, you know, advisors that it, none of it makes sense. And, and you and I will probably never know 
uh, what what personnel were in the group that made these decisions and and such. But I'm not. I wouldn't be impressed with anybody who made it out, who got us out of there in this uh, fashion. So it, it's it's on a lot of people. I don't, you know, unfortunately, it's a lot of people that made are making these decisions that we're definitely not getting clear answers and they probably feel we don't, we don't rate to have answers. Right. But we serve notice. We serve the news on them, whatever you want to call it. We serve the Biden administration that we do deserve answers. And of course, at the end of the day, I watched another interview where he is still, and you hit on the nail earlier, earlier, is still trying to point the blame on President Trump. Yes, President Trump signed the agreement saying that they would be out in such and such time. However, President Trump was never going to release all of the soldiers at once. The man is just not that dumb to do that. And no. we know he wasn't going to do it. And Biden, you can say it all day that it's Trump's fault. It's not his fault. And let's say, for instance, he did say those exact words the same way you're saying them. He's not in office, and he has not been for eight months. So the blood's on your hand, Biden, and so you could deflate, deflect the questions and not answer the questions, but at the end of the day, you will, you will, you will have to, as we say, take full responsibility for your actions, and I know the other day we killed so that's why, you know, going back to that, and I digress for a second, you know, they killed some guy some high-level um, intelligence person who I, I they, they hadn't told us if he's in the Al-Qaeda or is he a part of Taliban, but they killed him with the unmanned um, device, of course, the drone, and hadn't told us much about him. Apparently, like you stated, are, are we even rated to even know any information? They won't even tell us who the person is. When we killed uh, Bengali, is that was his name? What Bad Daddy. Uh, the president came out himself and told us exactly where, when, when it was appropriate. Uh, they took him down, you know, and we have Biden who's keeping us in the dark. And so, well, he's in the dark too. So I guess he feels if he's in the dark, the American people should be, but no, Biden, the blood's on your hand. Blood's on your hand. Mike, you have answered a, a lot of great questions with your insight, but I have one final question, the most important question. And I know, you're not a part of that administration. I know you're not a general. I know you don't make those decisions. But I want to know from your experience, this is the finale question. In your heart of hearts, do you feel that with what's going on now, we could find ourselves back in a war again? Uh, with Afghanistan? Absolutely. Oh, I doubt it. It's probably just going to be, if anything, some, uh, some more drone strikes and such on people that they say uh, they identified as doing some sort of terrorist acts. But as far as going back into the mountains and uh, actual fighting, I don't, I don't think so. Wow. So you think we're just going to let this one slide, huh? I do. I really think that's what their plan is. Wow. And as the more you talk about it, I sit here and think about it. That is very much possible. We're dealing with a weak administration and and very, very, very weak. And I know this is real talk. We talk about police matters, but this is most relevant at this point. And 
Mike, it makes me very angry because I was one of the ones with a lot of my colleagues on the ground fighting, fighting for the 2020 election to go in the favor of President Trump, which, by the way, you know, he did win. And it hurts me and it angers me to know all of our hard work was not in vain, but it was taken uh, for granted because at the end of the day, the president lost the election, and I don't—I never want him to stop speaking about it. That the election was stolen because it was, and if every person that I meet don't agree with this, I'm going to always preach it. It was stolen, and what I'm getting to is at this point we see people. I'm hearing—I haven't had had anybody come to my face and say that you know I was wrong for for this, but I've said this, and I can't wait till it happens. My words to that person that says I was wrong for voting Joe Biden. I'm going to say it's too late. You have to deal with the consequences of your actions. And at the end of the day, we had a great president who would have never allowed this to happen. And now, as we already seen many young men, all those guys, ironically enough, but I believe it was designed by God. So to show Biden that, yes, you know, his son served in the forces at one point, Bo, right? So if anybody should know better, should be Joe Biden to see at the end of the day, most of those guys that died in that bombing was in their 20s, early 20s. Yeah, and that was so, uh, it, that, that whole that whole situation makes no sense, how how close they have those people, and, and it clearly that didn't have to happen. That's just terrible. Didn't have to happen. No. And I'll say this too, our military seems like to me they're rescuing more. And and let me just say this because we're in the world of you have to go ahead and throw your apologetic out and your disclaimer so people don't accuse you of being racist. And even though I am a black man, I'm still can be considered a racist because I'm talking about another race. But I find it to see maybe I'm blind, but I'm seeing a lot more uh citizens of Afghanistan being free than Americans. And it Fools me. It makes me. It definitely. Uh, I'm. I'm very fathomed by it. Um, to to see the fact that they're putting them on our cargo planes. And I told somebody this the other day. I tell people every time I talk to them, in the midst of COVID. So now we got this new variant out. Now watch where I'm going with this. We have a new variant uh, allegedly, and of course the numbers are spike high, never been before. Yet alone, we're putting these Afghans on a plane, cargo plane, and they are um, very, like you stated, very close together in distance, right? And we have them in an enclosed area. And I know for a fact some of those people are spreading the virus of COVID, and then they're going to come over to America. Obviously, not all of them are going to make it over here, but some they are going to be scattered to other countries, and they are going to spread COVID like you've never seen it. But we forget about that the Afghans were the one that uh, I know most people say it was the Saudi Arabians who actually uh, committed the terrorist attacks. But at the end of the day, Osama was there leading the charge. But what I'm getting to is this, that we, that I know of, do you think they're doing some terrorist screenings before we allow these people to come into America? No. I agree. No. I agree. No. And, and probably because, I mean, in an ideal world, obviously we would want to, but there, it's just not possible. There, uh, I mean, with any makeshift papers that somebody were to bring up and say they worked for this department or whatever, is going to be next to impossible to prove in this amount of, in you know, that short amount of time. It's sad, and uh, 
and they're definitely going to be here. But you know what? They they can come from the south if they want. I mean, they can get here any any way they need to right now. That's true. And they're you know, doing it. It's, it's us transporting them here now is what is what we don't know. We don't know. And if America has never been as vulnerable as we are right now. This is sad to say, but this is the perfect opportunity for someone to sneak in from another country and commit another terrorist attack on us. And I know all the other countries are standing by watching this disaster unfold. And we have to pray for our country in America. Mike, it has been a pleasure just sharing with you. Um, this is sort of our catch-up moment, but it happens to be to all the live audience on the podcast show. And I have enjoyed, and I know the listeners are. And listeners, I want you to give me your feedback. You know where to find me on Facebook, uh, Instagram. I'm the politician man on, uh, or actually politician talk on Instagram. Politician underscore talk. I believe that's what it is. And if I'm wrong, type in my name. You're fine. But either way, let me know how you enjoyed this episode. This is one of the best. I always say all the episodes are great, but this is one of the best. Mike, I have really enjoyed you coming on the show, sharing your thoughts and your experiences. It has been a great collaboration. I hope you feel the same way. Oh, it's been great. I appreciate it. I'm looking. You're welcome. I mean, I'm just overjoyed that we finally was able to put this together. I look forward to bringing you on again and uh, sharing and other deals that are going on. I want to catch up even more to find out in the next uh, few episodes, somewhere down the road, what's happening, uh, the afterlife of Mike Marsh. And I forgot to give you the subtitle, listeners. It is called The Life After Being the Popo. That's what I came up with. Life After Being the Popo. You're hearing it from Mike, Mar Mike Marsh himself. Mike, I love you, brother. Tell the family hello and the boys. And I know that they're doing great things. They're probably getting ready to lay it down and get ready for school tomorrow. But I, I have enjoyed it. You tell the wife hello. And I want you to stick by for a moment. But we're getting ready to wrap up. We're getting ready to uh, bring it to an end. I know everybody's saddened by that. But we have to go because we have to get refreshed for the next episode. But to all the listeners, I have another awesome episode coming your way. Okay, I believe in the next episode after this, I'll take a short break from the chats and I'll come back by myself. I've been doing some interviews and I've been enjoying the interviews, but I need to come back and just dive right into what I have to dive into. And I've been watching this, Mike. I don't know if you've been seeing this, but it is something new. Out of all people, it's being pushed by the worst uh, mayor down there in Chicago, Chicago, Lori Lightfoot. She apparently is pushing this police task force accountability. If you heard about that, that's the latest thing. And of course, it's happening right here in North Carolina, right here in the capital county of Raleigh. The governor... Roy Cooper, the the dictator, Roy Cooper, we like to call him, has put together this task force as well. And guess what, Mike? It's made up of, of, of the civilians. And Sh Sheriff Dunning and I talked about it very briefly. And I said, Sheriff, you know what's amazing about this task force is um, they have all these folks up. And I'm talking to, from around the country, too, now, because um, every state is appearing to do this now. I see all the representations from the black activists, from this person and this person, but you know who we never see on this task force that I know of, Mike? Mm. We don't see a police officer up there. One-sided, mm -hmm. one-sided. One-sided. One 
And there's another buzzword that is going around. They're calling it reimagining the police. Well, I'm going to reimagine uh, the police as well, being great as we are, becoming even greater. That's what I'm going to reimagine the police. However, these are the latest buzzwords that are going around in the world today. On the left, by the way. The right's not pushing this stuff. It's all the left. Go figure, right? Well, we're going to dive into that. I'm going to do some research, and I'm going to get back with y'all, and we're going to talk about reimagining the police. Doesn't that sound cool? Makes you just want to take a nap, reimagining the police. Oh, yeah, by the way, I look forward to sharing that with you. So please stay tuned for that. Please stay tuned. Look, listeners, as we wrap up, I say it in every episode, I really have enjoyed bringing this particular episode to you. And as you always know, I always say reach one, teach one. But what we need to do is stay tuned for the next episode of Real Talk. I'm your host. I'm your guy. I'm the one you need to listen to because it's Real Talk. Please stay tuned for the next episode of Real Talk. I am off Antoine Thomas. And as I always say, I have thoroughly enjoyed it. God bless you. God bless this country. God bless your families. And most of all, God bless the United States Armed Forces. Listeners, until next time, this is Real Talk. I'm your host, Officer Antoine Thomas. See you again. Thank you.